only 16 people in history have enjoyed the honor and the privilege of lending their names to chemical elements. 17 if you count gallium, although Lecoq de Boisbaudrin would be horrified. Actually, keep him in mind, because he factors into the story of Samarium, too. Regardless, it's a highly exclusive club. Its members include some of the brightest minds in the history of science, from Einstein to Copernicus to Mendeleev himself. Some of them are a little more obscure, like Glenn Seaborg, and Alfred Nobel was probably recognized for his philanthropic contributions to society rather than his innovations in explosives. Vasily Samarsky Bikhovets was not any kind of scientist, famous or obscure, nor some kind of patron who funded great voyages of discovery. In fact, I don't mean to be cruel, but he just wasn't a particularly notable fellow at all, even when he was alive. Yet, not only did his name wind up on the periodic table, but his name was the very first to be borrowed for the name of a chemical element. So how did all this happen? Turns out, a small act of kindness and a big dose of professional embarrassment can go a very long way. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're stumbling into Samarium. Gustav and Heinrich Rose were a pair of brothers who lived in 19th century Prussia, and they came from a very accomplished family. Their ancestors and their descendants were prominent experts in their chosen professions. And these two were no different, luminaries of mineralogy and chemistry. Gustav spent much of his time traveling across the Russian Empire, studying and cataloging samples of newly discovered minerals. The chief of the Russian Mining Engineering Corps brought one such sample to Rose's attention, a black and lustrous mineral that was kind of similar to iterbite. Rose determined that there were high amounts of uranium and tantalum in this mineral, so the name seemed self-evident. Uranotantalum. Other scientists seemed pretty interested in this mineral because they kept cracking it open to discover new elements in tiny quantities. Elements they gave names like dianium, ilmenium, and pelopium. It was actually Gustav's brother, Heinrich, who reigned in this spree of supposed discovery several years later. He proved that these newly claimed elements were actually compounds of previously discovered materials. And he gave the name niobium to element 41. In the course of all that work, he also showed that there was no tantalum in the uranotantalum that his own brother had described. 
In a series of letters, Heinrich explained to Gustav that the mineral he had discovered could probably use a new, more accurate name. Gustav agreed, remembering the name of that helpful chief of the Russian Mining Engineering Corps. He wrote back, I propose changing the name of the Tantalum to Samarskite in honor of Colonel Samarsky, by whose grace I was able to make all of the above observations on this mineral. This was several years after the fact, so Colonel Samarsky must have really left quite a mark on old Gus. It's not like he had anything more to gain by flattering this mid-level bureaucrat whom he hadn't seen in years. Sometimes, lending a helping hand just pays off in unexpected ways. But hold up. That's just the rock. It contains uranium and niobium and a handful of other known elements, not tantalum. Samarskite was a unique mineral, but no one had actually found any new elements lurking within. That is, not until a few decades later. By 1879, our old friend Paul-Emile Lecoq de Boisbaudran was an accomplished chemist. He had discovered gallium only four years earlier. A discovery that was rather scandalous, as we learned in that episode. In case you don't recall, his colleagues suspected that he might have indirectly named Elements 31 after himself. In Latin, Gallus means rooster, and lecoq is the French word for the same thing. Whether he actually meant to sneak his name into scientific nomenclature or not, de Boisvaudran always acted aghast whenever the suggestion came up. To his dying day, he insisted that he named the element after the Latin word for France, Gallia. Whatever his original intentions may have been, he never wanted to invite such accusations of impropriety again. So, in 1879, when he did actually discover a real, new, honest-to-goodness element within Samarskite, he wasn't going to take any chances. The right and the responsibility to name this new element fell to him, and he was going to make the most conservative decision possible. By taking the name from the mineral in which he had discovered it, no one could possibly accuse him of any kind of chicanery. Thus, from Samarskite, the element became known as Samarium and an unrenowned mining official's name became an enduring feature of the Catalogue of Chemical Elements. To some, this might appear more than just amusingly coincidental, but actually an injustice. So many scientists who contributed so much to chemistry and physics are not remembered in this way, even though they might have come very close. Clapperothium, Luisium, Mosendrum, Moslium, Berzelium, and Davium are just a few of the names that were once proposed for various chemical discoveries that never quite made the cut. By this point in the series, you can probably guess who those names are supposed to honor, too, 
and would agree that they're titans in the history of the field. So it would certainly be appropriate for these names, and many others, to decorate the periodic table. And it's not entirely out of the question yet. Element 112 was named after Nicholas Copernicus in 2010, half a millennium after he performed his landmark astronomical research. New elements are increasingly elusive and difficult to synthesize, but it's not unfathomable that a team of researchers could uncover elements beyond 118 any day now, and perhaps they will be named after these historical figures. But I think it's pretty wonderful that Vasily Samarsky Bikhovets takes a place among this constellation of bright scientific stars. In the small collection of fundamental pieces of matter, we pay homage not only to individual scientists, but various countries and cities, colors of the rainbow, planets in the solar system, and gods from ancient mythology. But right here, in the table's 60-second space, we pay tribute to someone who had more in common with everyone else on Earth. Just a man who had a simple job, who performed it well, who treated a fellow human being with a little basic kindness. If we have room on the roll call of atoms to memorialize all those other things, then I, for one, am glad that we found room for that as well. You will not need to make too much room on your element shelf, because of the many ways to add samarium to your collection, most of them don't take up very much room. Samarskite would make a nice display piece, considering today's story. Also, samarium is one of only two elements named for a person that actually occurs in nature. Gadolinium is the other one. We'll get there in two episodes. But all the others are synthesized in the lab, and don't exist longer than a few months at most. You may remember from two episodes ago that most magnets used to be made of samarium and cobalt. Those magnets aren't completely obsolete today, because they're superior to neodymium magnets in one respect. They have a much higher Curie point. We've seen how magnetism is a strange phenomenon that only manifests when conditions are just right for a whole bunch of atoms to line up all nice and orderly. In some magnets, a material like samarium forces cobalt atoms to get in line with its crystal structure. Temperature is also an important component of this fragile arrangement. A material's temperature is really just a measurement of how much its constituent atoms are vibrating. If a magnet gets hot enough, there comes a point where the minuscule magnets that make it up can't stay coordinated any longer. They just become too excited to continue pointing in the same direction, and the material loses its ferromagnetic properties. That point is called the Curie point, since it was discovered by Marie Curie's husband, Pierre. 
Neodymium magnets are better than samarium cobalt magnets in pretty much every respect, except this one. Neodymium magnets fail at temperatures around 180 degrees Celsius, while the samarium kind can keep working at temperatures twice as hot. That's the kind of thing you care about if you spend your time running into burning buildings. At least one company has tried developing gloves that attach to a firefighter's protective jacket using samarium cobalt magnets. Some guitar pickups use samarium cobalt magnets too, but not everyone likes the sound. If you have musician friends, they might be willing to part with their own samples of samarium for a low price. But even if they're not, samarium shouldn't be too difficult to find. It's pretty cheap, because it's an abundant byproduct of europium processing and refining. Coincidentally, europium is element number 63, so we'll stop here for now, and pick up there next episode. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To hear Freeman Dyson wax poetic about Samarium 149, visit episodictable.com slash sm. Until next time, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that little acts of kindness are usually not repaid in such a grand fashion, but they're still worth doing anyway. <laughs>